Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Lillian Ross, who died on September 20th, 2017, at the age of 99, spent seven decades as a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine beginning in 1945. Writing for the Talk of the Town section of the magazine, her credo was, Your attention at all times should be on your subject, not on you. Do not call attention to yourself. In 1950, her profile of Ernest Hemingway, according to the New York Times, elevated her into the top ranks of New Yorker stylists. Using novelistic techniques for writing nonfiction, she is often credited as the primary influence of what came to be called the new journalism, as exemplified in her series of articles about the making of the John Huston film, The Red Badge of Courage, which were collected in the book Picture. She spent several years as the mistress of longtime New Yorker editor William Shawn, has chronicled in her book Here But Not Here from 1998. I had a chance to speak with Lillian Ross on June 4, 2002, on the publication of her book, Reporting Back, Notes on Journalism. Did you know the first editor, Harold Ross, particularly oh, well? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Harold Ross is the editor who hired me. And although he was averse to the idea of having women at the New Yorker, he said that women cried if their pieces were rejected. And he, he just, that made him very nervous and very unhappy. And he didn't want women at the New Yorker. And the New Yorker was supposed to be a male-oriented publication, which in a way it was, but uh, as soon as the first four women came to work there and he saw that they were good reporters and useful to him and good for the New Yorker and all, that was the beginning and the end of all that. Did he ever talk about the early days of the New Yorker and how hard it was to get started or how easy? Oh, yes, and apparently it was difficult. They didn't have any money and... And there were times when it was about to go under. But I think it wasn't long before it caught on. And then uh, Alan Mackey, I believe her name was, who was a society figure, wrote a, wrote a piece about her life and her group and, and uh, uh, the position of so- social figures in uh, New York at that time. And it, it uh, created a lot of attention, and that was the beginning of the New Yorker having been taken up by uh, not only society figures, but uh, people in the know, people who were supposed to be sophisticated. And then those two geniuses came along to join Harold Ross, who was a genius too, and they were E.B. White and James Thurber, and they established what became uh, New Yorker writing to a very, very great extent. When I did that book called The Fun of It, 
that the New Yorker brought out, which is a collection of Talk of the Town stories from um, 1925 until 2002, I was uh, able to see myself for the first time how James Thurber is the man who taught me how to write a talk story. I wasn't aware of it, of course, but by then he had established a certain kind of tradition, certain kind of form, certain kind of energy, and a certain tone. And it was good, solid reporting. Thurber himself had been a newspaper man, and uh, he, he had that, uh, those disciplines ingrained in him. He was wonderful. The New Yorker, from what you're telling me, from what I've read, certainly, has a very specific style, almost a New Yorker style. I mean, this was true more in the days before Tina Brown than perhaps, you know, afterward. Did you ever feel constrained by that at all? Never. And I don't think it's really true, because uh, the New Yorker, from the beginning of my experience with Harold Ross and William Sean, always encouraged me to have the freedom and to use my talent for whatever it was to do a kind of writing that was mine and mine alone. And I think that tradition has continued. And Tina Brown uh, not only encouraged that and welcomed it, but even stimulated that whole uh, tradition to a very, very great extent. When you began at the New Yorker, you kind of came in through a little bit through the back door because it was tough for a woman to get published. At what point did you feel as if you were really part of the family? How many years did that take? Uh, about ten seconds. Really? Oh, yes, because as soon as I was there, I could feel that this was the place I wanted to be, and I've never wanted to... Uh, uh, work for uh, any other publication since. When you began, you fit into that niche that Thurber had established, the talk of the town. You use the we, as you talk about in yeah. your book reporting back, instead of I. And you always, I notice in all of your work, even though you're present, you're invisible at the same time. And that seems to be a very specific style that you use. We know Lillian Ross is there. Yes. We have to know she's there. Yes. But even in picture, yes. she's also not there. Uh, well, I uh, very, very strongly believe, and I go into that to some extent in the new book, I believe that your point of view as a reporter and as a writer should be implicit in the fact. And that's very difficult to do, but it's a real challenge and a challenge that I welcome. And I've not only been able to do that in long pieces, but in the talk of the town pieces, which are short, they're 800 to 1,000 words, and the challenge is to write a real story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and to find a story that no one else sees, no one else finds, but you find it, and it's the truth of that particular event or incident, or person that you're writing about. So the we is something that felt comfortable to me for the beginning, and we used it. <laughs> but after a while, I began to feel a little edgy and a little impatient with it. 
and I began to write stories as scenes. And Bill Sean, who had become editor by then, welcomed that. And it was a way of getting a little more action into it, and uh, it moved a little more quickly than the old stories and were more dramatic. And I've loved doing that. Do you try to avoid using the word I, then? No, I can use I when it's called for. It isn't necessary to use we. In the old days, Harold Ross wanted the we to be anonymous, and in a way he wanted it always to be a mas- what he called a masculine we. But that was a lot of nonsense once the women came in because there was no difference. The we was always a reporter and a reporter who was trying to be a good writer and trying to present the truth in a way that was entertaining and that that moved quickly. Lillian Ross, how easy or hard is it for you to find that perfect opening sentence? It's easy. One sits down, and uh, I am a firm believer still in traditional who, what, when, where, and how, the essentials that are used to be taught, and I believe they still are, in what are called journalism schools. I follow that, but I have always tried to push it a bit and find my own way of opening a story. But I still believe that I should, I owe it to the reader and to myself to establish a beginning that is a key to what the story is going to be all the way through, whether it's a short piece or whether it's a longer piece of writing. There's an expression that was made up about me that's absolutely ridiculous, and Bill Sean it was, it said that, that it, was, uh, it was stupid, and that is the expression, fly on the wall. Well, there's no such thing. It wasn't true of me ever, even though somebody made it up. And then it became a kind of thing that was used and is even taught in journalism schools. And then even I, years later, heard from a kind of novice editor, well, you ought to go out and be, go to the store and be a fly on the wall. You're not a fly on the wall. You're chemically involved in, in whatever it is you're reporting. The relationship you establish with the person you're going to write about is very, very important. You have to listen carefully and listen to what the person is saying to you and listen with your own ears and not with a tape recorder. I happen to know that when I do that, and I've done that for pieces I've written, I sometimes get it wrong. Now, if I've got the microphone... I can't get it wrong. No, no, it isn't a question of right or wrong. It's getting a sense of what the subject is that you're trying to write about. And once you get that sense, you will also hear the rhythm of the speech. And there are things you can do, even with quotes, that can make it truer of the person than the way it comes out in a realistic recording of what is actually being said because you take the quotes and you use it in a certain pattern. You, uh, you choose some quotes and you t- take out other quotes. And without your interjecting yourself by choosing certain facts 
or even choosing certain quotes to make a story out of it. Okay, let's take a, an example. Okay, you have a, a recent story about Tony Curtis yes. in The New Yorker. I was, as you, uh, <laughs> just before you asked that, I was thinking of some quotes in that story. Okay, be, be specific. What, what quote do you remember <clears throat> is more Curtis than Curtis would have ever said? Exactly. His having talked about uh, how his uh, son at the age of of 23, died of a heroin overdose. And Wilder's comment. Uh, exactly. Oh, you're a pretty astute. You're a good reader. <laughs> okay. Uh, he, um, uh, he said a week after his son Nicholas died, uh, he went to Spago and he saw Billy Wilder and he knelt down at Billy Wilder's table and he said to Billy Wilder, my son Nicholas died of a heroin o- overdose. And Billy Wilder's response to him was, quote, he learned it from you, unquote. And then Tony Curtis eventually in the story goes on to say how that hurt him very much. And Tony Curtis says in the story, I made myself forgive him. Did Tony Curtis Um, actually say that? Absolutely. Okay. But uh, it's up to me to arrange the sequence of these facts. And quotes are facts, are are what we refer to as facts, too. It's up to me to arrange the sequence and to... And to choose these particular quotes out of everything Tony Curtis said to me at one time or another. And also it's in the context of one aspect of acting that he, he uh, learned from Billy Wilder. And that's what he calls the fast response. And he said Billy Wilder was... That was ingrained in Billy Wilder, he, and the, one of the reasons he forgave him, he said, is because he understood that that's the way Billy Wilder was, to not to let any time elapse, but immediately to respond so that your response comes in and almost shuts out what the other person is saying. And he learned that from Billy Wilder in his acting. And he explains to me in the story that one of the reasons he forgave Billy Wilder for having said this unforgivable thing to him was that he understood that Billy Wilder was devoted to the quick response. And that was the main thing with Billy Wilder. And he had, and, and this is also in the story along with his talking about how he was afraid of Billy Wilder because there was something about Will Billy Wilder that was frightening to him at that point in his life, that he was quirky uh, and mean. He used the word mean and he used the word quirky. Well, it's up to me to place all these various elements in the story while building it and while writing it so that it has a certain kind of effect on the writer without my making a speech as the writer about what it means and all the rest of it. Sure, but if you're not 
taking the if you're taking the notes, if you're sitting there, if there's no tape recorder, right? Couldn't you suddenly become, in a way, Janet Malcolm and Jeffrey Masson? No, never. <laughs> it's impossible to, for me to become Janet Malcolm. But, do, do, do you understand what I mean? I mean, the the fact is that that if you don't have if, if you don't have the backup, right, and you're doing that sort of creation, there is the problem that you could go over the edge, and then you've got a situation where the other person comes back and says. I never said I was a whore. I mean, yeah, for example. Yeah. Well, I never had that problem in, in 50 years of working as a reporter. I never had anybody I wrote about ever uh, say that I never said that or it wasn't true and it wasn't like that. I never had that experience. And uh, I'm sure I'm proud of that, but I sort of take that for granted because I know in the way I work, that I'm finding a kind of truth uh, that I have my own way of presenting and my own way of writing. Janet Malcolm is an entirely different kind of, of person, uh, I think, and, and uh, thank God I'm not like uh, <laughs> Janet Malcolm because I don't believe in, uh, in uh, f- first of all, I don't think she understands reporting. That's that's. that's for starters, but also you don't use your reporting as a way of expressing your animosities, your hostilities, your dislikes, your intellectual pretensions, your intellectual prejudices, and a number of other things on the laundry list. I want to throw out a few names, because one thing in, it's one thing to write a profile, to meet someone and write a profile, and you let your feelings come through through your choices, not directly, not saying, I hated that person, or whatever, you know, or trying to keep it clean in that way. And, of course, it comes out. We all know that since we're all subjective beings, on some level it will always come out. Exactly. You can write clean, clear prose. It's going to come out. But it's not going to come out directly. So I'm going to ask you about some people and get some direct answers from Lillian Ross, because over 50 years you have met an extraordinary number of yes. amazing people. So let me throw out some names to you. Some are... Before you do that, okay. may I say one thing to sure. you? Sure. First of all, I never write about anybody I don't like. Uh, if I'm going to choose a subject, I'm not going to choose to spend precious moments and weeks or even years of my life with somebody I don't want to be with. So that's for starters. Secondly, I have strong opinions, I have strong prejudices, and I have very clear interests. And when I do a story about a person, I'm not interested in certain gossipy aspects of that person's life. To me, those elements are boring. What interests me, for the most part, is talent in people and what people have to offer the world in a creative way. And to me, that is absolutely fascinating and endlessly fascinating because there are so many diverse kinds of talent, thank God, in our universe. 
Well, then you're trying to get to the root of those people, which is why I'm yes. curious. And some of these people may be people you haven't interviewed, and if you say, I don't know them, I never met them, we'll just, I'll yeah. just move on. Let me throw a few out at you. Richard Nixon. I actually wrote a, a talk of the town story about I Richard Nixon. I know, and Nixon. you didn't like him. <laughs> uh, of course I didn't like him, but this was not a story about how I didn't like Richard Nixon or about his politics. It was a story about what, after, uh, before he was uh, elected president. And he was living in New York, and he would take a daily walk from his very high uh, rental apartment to the Pierre Hotel where he had an office. And I described this walk, and I used Nixonese as a way of describing him. Let me make this perfectly clear. That was a fire hydrant. Let me throw some other names. John Houston. Well, he was absolutely fascinating. He, he First of all, he was very generous and very helpful to me. I met him for the first time. The first time I w went to Hollywood, it was before, a, a couple of years before he invited me to come and, and watch him make the Red Badge of Courage. But I, I went to Hollywood. It was one of my very first pieces, and it was called Come in Lassie, and it dealt with the House Un-American Activities Committee investigation of uh, so-called communists and communist propaganda in movies. And I did this story about, uh, about the people and how they were reacting, how they were cowardly. Frederick March, I remember, who had given a, an ambulance to the loyalists in Spain, was called a communist. And he said, I was no communist. I was just a big ambulance giver. <laughs> yeah. And as, as like that. Well, then I, I went to the Warner Brothers studio where they were making the movie Key Largo, directed by John Huston, uh, with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and Edward G. Robinson. And they were talking about uh, all the things that had happened during the investigation, including going to Washington and making protests, and some of them going to jail for contempt of uh, court because they they wouldn't answer certain questions and said it was none of the committee's business. Their, their own way of their own vote was a, a private matter. But John immediately appealed to me because he was independent. He wasn't careful about the way he said things. He he spoke his mind. And he was a lot of fun. He had a great sense of humor and a lot of fun. We became friends as a result of my having written that piece. And he loved the piece. And uh, I remember he wrote a letter to Harold Ross, who was an editor, and Ross sent me a copy of the letter and all that. And then uh, every time Houston would come to New York, he would call me up, and uh, we, we, I would just have fun with him. And then he invited me to come out to Hollywood and watch him make the Red Badge of Courage. And at that point in my life, I was trying to get out of the emotional involvement with William Sean, who was then managing editor of The New Yorker. And I welcomed the opportunity to go to Hollywood, and I did. I not only went, but I stayed there for a year and a half working on what became the book, Picture, 
of course, the way my life evolved, love is a powerful, powerful, powerful element in, in our lives. And uh, Bill Sean and I decided to make our life together when I came back a year and a half later. And we did. And the book picture, by the way, the 50th anniversary edition is the edition that is that has just been published. And uh, I love boasting about, after all, not too many people have 50th anniversaries of anything. And Angelica Houston wrote a preface to the book. But uh, Houston was generous, and his producer, Gottfried Reinhardt, was a wonderful man, also generous and helpful. I had a great time in Hollywood. I, I have a, a little scene. I have a couple of scenes in, in the book about L.B. Mayer, uh, who was uh, you know, a terrible man in a certain way. But I happen to love good, honest, upfront crooks and, and monsters, as long as they aren't exercising cruelties uh, that are visible to me. When you were and, writing that, did you ever feel yourself becoming seduced by Hollywood as if you would want to write, to, write for them? Or no. did you want to just get right back to the comfort no. of the New Yorker? No. Well, it wasn't the comfort of the New Yorker. It's just that... Uh, I seem to have had a one-track mind in my life. There wasn't any other kind of writing that really appealed to me and still doesn't because in the kind of writing I do, I have scenes and I have dialogue and I have many of the elements that I find in movies I admire or in a few plays that I admire. And I find that I can do whatever it is I'm driven to do in the kind of writing I do and have done for The New Yorker. The New Yorker gives me that freedom, and it gives me the wherewithal, and it gives me the support, and it gives me the encouragement. And from the beginning, it was Harold Ross, and then William Sean, and then Tina Brown, who was who shook up the magazine and did all kinds of new and and wonderful things to it to make it her magazine. And now our young editor, David Remnick, who is a kind of genius in his own right, and he's taken the magazine she made and he's made it his own. And it still gives me an opportunity to write exactly what I want to do. So, no. I I could have given you a simple one-word answer to your question. I haven't been seduced. And you haven't written fiction, I would guess, for that reason. I've I've written some fiction. You have. I wrote a series of, uh, I pride myself on, on knowing that it was the first time satirical stories had been written about psychoanalysts and psychiatrists in New York. And the, the, it was published as a novel, eventually. It was called Vertical and Horizontal. And I've written a few other fictional stories. What about the world between fiction and nonfiction as exemplified by, I think it was called New Journalism, yeah. books like uh, Armies of the Night by Norman Mailer yeah. or uh, In Cold Blood? The best journalists are wonderful writers. And you're a good writer or you're a bad writer. And Norman Mailer is a wonderful writer, 
but he has his own way of doing uh, his writing. And, and uh, we used to, he's a friend of mine, and and I love talking with him. We used to argue with him way, way back before he got into writing uh, uh, Armies of the Night and so on. And I would say I believe in keeping myself out of the stories. So naturally, Norman Mailer, being Norman Mailer, wanted to do just the opposite. And it's it's wonderful. He's he's a wonderful writer, and anything he does has uh, something marvelous uh, about it. But uh, he's a fiction writer. Lillian Ross. All those years at the New Yorker and the wars that went on, it sounds like you managed to survive the entire process with a very positive outlook, as opposed to people, say, like Renata Adler. <laughs> Through those years, you met an extraordinary number of people. And I'd like to ask you a little bit about them. Uh, one of the most fascinating was a woman who wrote from Paris by the name of Janet Flanner. Yes. Did you know her well? I didn't know her well. She was of a different generation. And uh, Harold Ross once uh, took me to dinner. He, he said he wanted me to meet her when she she lived in Paris and she would come to New York. And he took us to 21. They talked about what she was she was writing, and they did their talk, and I sat there eating a wonderful dinner and going to 21 for the first time in my life, and it was it was very enjoyable for me. But she wasn't particularly interested in me. I read some of her pieces, and I thought she was a a wonderful writer, a wonderful reporter. She was just there. Pauline Kale, did you know her well? I never knew her well. I knew her writing, and I think she, she, I think she was a bit of a megalomaniac about movies, and I think she had a right to be in a certain way because she knew more about movies than anybody else at that particular time. But she was possessive of them, and I think she sort of resented picture when it came out. And there was one point along the line when she tried to write a, a piece for Esquire about the making of a movie. I think it was based on the book, The Group. Uh, I, I think that that's right. I liked reading her pieces, but I never really knew her well uh, personally. What was your take? You talk about it a little in here, but not here. But what was your take on the changeover from Bill Sean to Bob Gottlieb and the role of S.I. Newhouse? Bill Sean liked uh, S.I. Newhouse. He, he liked him, uh, and I liked him. I, I met him. He bought the New Yorker, and everybody at the New Yorker was scared that he was going to change it, he was going to do this and going to do that. So there was a lot of hysteria and a lot of fear. But Bill liked him. And the problem was to find a successor uh, to Bill Sean. Bill was planning to leave anyway then. Uh, sure. He was uh, getting into his late 70s, I believe. And he wanted to be relieved. And, he, you know, he wanted to uh, uh, enjoy life in a certain way. But he had become such a strong figure in the lives of so many writers and artists, and they didn't want to let go of him, and they and they uh, 
they uh, might have understood the need, but it, it was uh, like a child with a parent. They they didn't want to let go of him. He was giving them too much that they needed. So there was that great, great problem. There were some people around the New Yorker, sub-editors, and there was one he thought uh, Bill's opinion of him was not of the highest order because he thought he was weak and he uh, thought he he, uh, he lacked the kind of uh, quality that that someone who was going to be devoted to all these diverse talents needed in order to do the work, and so he uh, he nominally selected. Uh, one man and started to take him to lunch and try to teach him things and so on. Well, there's certain things you can't really teach. And uh, Newhouse got impatient. And at the time, he thought that Robert Gottlieb uh, was uh, had he had what he called quote charisma unquote and all the rest of it. Anyway, uh, Newhouse didn't necessarily need to know what what the editor had to be with all these all these talents. So Bill left and Newhouse put Gottlieb in the in the job and Bill Sean asked me to leave with him and I uh I of course wanted to do that. My life was uh was part of his life. Uh, we had a whole life together outside of the New Yorker. And uh, so I left for the five years. I left the magazine for the five years Gottlieb was there. And I don't know what it was like, except that I didn't read the magazine. I I lost interest in it. But apparently there were a lot of people who lost interest in it. And to all intents and purposes, the magazine died during that five-year period. So Gottlieb left, Newhouse asked him to leave, and brought in Tina Brown, who was editor of Vanity Fair. Well, I happened to like the idea because uh, although I didn't know her, I saw the things she was trying to do at at Vanity Fair, and although it wasn't my kind of journalism, I got a kind of kick out of it. She came in, and she immediately turned the place upside down, shook it up, got rid of a lot of people, uh, eventually including some of the uh, people Bill Sean was reluctant to uh, to fire or let go because he didn't like to fire anybody. She hired a host of of young people, new people, new talents. She opened the magazine up to all kinds of young fiction writers uh, whom the fiction editors had had strong prejudices toward, and so on, and and uh, other other talented writers, and, uh, she, and she brought in photography, and she was doing all kinds of wonderful things. She asked me at one point if if I would come back and write for the magazine, and at the time I happened to be in San Francisco. Uh, visiting uh, Robin and Marcia Williams, who live here and who had become good friends of mine 
since 1986, and they were making the movie Mrs. Doubtfire here, and so Tina Brown wanted to know if I would write about the making of Mrs. Doubtfire for The New Yorker, and I just kind of liked the idea, so I came back, and I've been at The New Yorker ever since. I liked, I not only liked and admired Tina Brown, but I thought, and I think now, that she is a, a genius in her own right and capable of doing all kinds of new things. It was a lot of fun to, for me to work, to, to work for her. Lillian Ross, what separates a bad editor from a good editor and a good editor from a great editor? A bad editor is, uh, is someone who doesn't really want to be an editor and work with uh, highly talented people. It's more than blue penciling and so on. So the difference really is between a good editor and a great editor. A great editor was Harold Ross, was William Sean, was Tina Brown, and is David Remnick. They know how to work with highly volatile, talented, interesting, original, creative people and bring out what that person and that person alone really can can do. Bill Sean always used to say to the writers and to the artists, nobody else can do what you can do. And he meant it. And of course, each writer and artist thought he, that he was the only one Bill Sean was saying that to because writers and artists happen to be big egos and so on, and they like to think that way. But that is really the truth. They know what to do with talent, and they're creative in their own way. The New Yorker is David Remnick's New Yorker. The New Yorker was Tina Brown's New Yorker. And Harold Ross and William Sean had their New Yorkers. And the magazine really, really is a reflection in a deep way of the nature and spirit and soul of the great editor. Lillian Ross, here we are in 2002. Where do you see journalism going? I don't know. I love print journalism, and when I find it in other publications, for example, Maureen Dowd or Marie Brenner or Frank Rich or people like that whom I admire and look to, for a kind of writing that I'm not capable of doing, I don't think that there's any other medium that can carry what the New Yorker is in the way of journalism. I, I don't think there is. The, uh, in, the magazines on the Internet uh, are all right, but, you know, it, you, you need a lot of patience to, to read what's in there. And you don't get that much information. That's another thing. And television is uh, sometimes intolerable with some of the egotistical personalities who take over and are giving you that instead of what you're looking for. Lillian Ross, obviously you're never going to retire. I mean, you keep no, doing this. Oh, God, no. I hope not. <laughs> is there anyone in 50 years 
who you really wanted to interview, might have come close to, to write a profile of, but never got a shot, and you just damn wish you had? I don't think so. I can't think of anybody I longed to write about. Those I wanted to write about, I, I think I've written about. If there's anyone in history who you would have loved to have met and written a profile of. Yes. I don't know about writing about them, but there are so many of the figures in history that I have such uh, a skepticism about because of what's been written about them, including the biographies. When I read about John Adams, for example, I'm just not satisfied. There are too many questions I have. When I read about Thomas Jefferson, I think, whoa, who wrote about him to have uh, made these uh, these uh, statements uh, uh, carry on from century to century, really? So I wonder ab- about things like like that. And so, uh, sure, if if we could do what my son believes in, do some of this uh, Albert Einstein stuff, and go back in time, and so on, I'd I'd love to interview some of those people. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.